If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. That's where we are this morning in God's Word. If you're uh, using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find it on page 884. 884. This morning we are studying one of the, the most important events in all of redemptive history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, his resurrection from the grave, is attested to in all four eyewitness accounts known as uh, Gospels. And this morning we're studying the, the third Gospel in the New Testament, Luke's Gospel, his account of the empty tomb and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Having, having reached the final chapter of Luke's Gospel, uh, we've been studying it since uh, early spring, I think, uh, having reached this this last chapter, we can see kind of through a backward glance that Luke has been uh, faithful to chronicle the significant events in Jesus' life and ministry. And through it all, we have learned that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. The Old Testament had these anticipations built in of a great king coming. And we see that in Jesus, he fulfills that Old Testament. He is, he's the new Adam who begins the new creation. He's the, the promised offspring of Abraham who's a blessing to the nations. He's a prophet, a great teacher like Moses, and a mediator like Moses too, a mediator of a covenant. And he is a king like the great King David. Last week as we studied the conclusion of Luke chapter 23, we consider a scene that shocked and horrified Jesus' disciples. All of their hopes of the kingdom of God came crashing down as Jesus was led to the cross, crucified as a criminal, and mocked by everyone around him. He breathed his last and his body was laid in a stone-sealed tomb. A, a massive stone was rolled in front of it that uh, a number of people would have to get behind and move if they wanted to open it up. And this week, as we turn to study Luke 24, we see that death would not have the last word. We have the joy of seeing, learning, and rejoicing in the good news that the tomb is empty and that Christ has risen. In, in Luke 24, we see what we've just sung, that, that death is dead, love has won, and that Christ has conquered the grave. As I read Luke chapter 24 over and over again this past week, I became aware of common threads that, that emerged again and again. And when an author repeats um, something, he usually wants you to notice it. And as Luke chronicles each scene surrounding Jesus' resurrection, common themes re-emerge, even intensifying and, and escalating until... Jesus opens the eyes of his hearers to understand what has taken place. In just a moment, I'm going to read Luke 24 for us. I'm going to read all of it, all 53 verses. And, and as I read, I want you to try and notice, hear these things that are re-emerging and repeating. I want you to hear uh, and notice that when confronted with the empty tomb and the news that Jesus is alive... Confusion and bewilderment plague Jesus' disciples. Their, their puzzlement persists deep into the chapter, even as we're told on multiple occasions by angels and by Jesus that all of these things were predicted and promised. The only thing that really breaks the cycle is Jesus' gracious and personal self-disclosure. 
his personal revelation. And as we read, watch and listen for this ongoing confusion of the disciples. Watch and listen for the numerous references to past predictions. And and look for how Jesus patiently explains it all. Read Luke 24. Let me read Luke 24 verses 1 to 53 for us now. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. I, I trust that you noticed several kind of threads re-emerging as we read through Luke 24. Here, here are the four threads that, that uh, I, I found and saw re-emerging. The four threads that we're going to be uh, studying the next, uh, for, the, for the rest of this sermon. These are the four points of the sermon. They all begin with P. Perplexed, predicted, proof, and proclamation. And I'll, I'll repeat those as we're kind of moving into each new section. The, the, the simple message that these threads weave together, these four threads weave together is this. Jesus has been raised from the dead as predicted by the scriptures. So rejoice and share, tell this good news to others. That's the message of Luke 24. Jesus has been raised from the dead as predicted by the scriptures, so rejoice in this good news and tell others about it. 
Let's begin with our, our first point, perplexed. The disciples, they were perplexed. This is what we see all throughout this chapter. Look there though at the beginning of Luke 24. It, it opens with the word but. That word, it, it really marks out a contrast. The material that follows that word is going to present a contrast with what, what preceded it. Luke 23 had concluded with Jesus' death and burial. There had been multiple eyewitnesses to Jesus' death and burial. Everyone, the, the Roman officials, the Jewish religious leaders, the crowd, and Jesus' disciples treated Jesus' body like a dead body. Luke 23 even mentioned that Jesus' disciples saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. They prepared for anointing his body with the proper spices and ointment, but in obedience to the law of God, they, they rested on the Sabbath. They didn't go and anoint his dead body. Even as chapter 24 opens, Jesus' disciples, these women we see here, were operating out of the framework that Jesus was dead. They were taking the spices they had prepared to anoint his dead body with to this tomb. And verse 2 really signals the first surprise for us. They found, note that word, that key word, found. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Uh, Mark's gospel tells us that these women, while they were on their way to the tomb, they were, they were talking amongst themselves, they were discussing amongst themselves who might move the stone for them. Uh, they knew that, that they did not have the strength to move this massive stone. Would, would they ask the Roman guards who were stationed there? Would there be enough of them to, to move the stone since it was so heavy? They, they worried about finding the people to move this massive stone. They, they were not expecting to find the stone, as we see here, rolled away from the tomb. And the second surprise there is in verse 3. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They expected to find his body. They were, as you can see there in verse 4, perplexed by its absence. They came there seeking the dead. But the angels, who they were clearly afraid of, told them that he is not here, but he is risen. You've been confused before, right? You've been perplexed, bewildered, baffled. When we are, are perplexed or confused, what, what is happening is that our expectations are being overturned. That's precisely what confusion is. We, we thought one thing was going to happen, we were almost certain of it, and suddenly something totally unexpected happens and, and we're kind of disoriented. Uh, the angels explain what has happened there in verses 6 and 7. They call to mind Jesus' words, and then these disciples, they remember. You see that in verse 8. Take that in. They remembered his words. How often do we need to remember what God has said to us in, in his word? All the time. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage to you, commend to you the practice of scripture memory. We are, we are so forgetful uh, and we need to remember the, the words of love that our God has spoken to us. Especially, especially when we're confused and perplexed and don't understand. We need to remember God's word. Not only uh, do these women remember Jesus' words, but they go and tell uh, all these things to the eleven. Uh, and that means they explained to the eleven the empty tomb, the, the presence of angels, and, and really the angels' explanation too. Notice though that confusion really still persists. Uh, look at their reaction, the reaction they get at the end of verse 11. Uh, they didn't believe the women. 
it seemed to them to be an idle tale. This is unbelievable to the eleven. And that's a, that's a reasonable reaction, isn't it? They saw Jesus breathe his last. They, they saw him wrapped in a linen cloth. They knew he was laid in the tomb. They heard him say, it is finished. And they believed that it was finished. They believed it was over and done with. See, Peter, he, he goes to the tomb to investigate. And perhaps, perhaps he's beginning to believe as we're told that he marveled at what had happened in verse 12. This, I think, should be our reaction to the empty tomb. It is a, it's a marvelous thing that Jesus was not there. It should bring us such great joy that Jesus has risen. Even if we can say with full confidence that Peter understands, we know that the, the two on the road to Emmaus are, are still confused. I don't know about you, but I find this uh, seven-mile walk fascinating, right? Jesus, he draws near... But they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him because as verse 16 says, their, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. One of the things that I prayed for my kids this past week, and for some of you uh, gathered here this morning, is this. Lord, don't keep my kids from recognizing Jesus. Lord, don't let my friends, don't keep them from recognizing you. Reveal yourself to them. Maybe you're here this morning and you're searching for the truth. Why not pray, Oh God, would you reveal yourself to me through the Bible? Would you make it clear to me who Jesus is? Draw near to me and, and disclose yourself to me. Friend, humble yourself and, and pray that prayer. We don't ultimately know why these two disciples were kept from recognizing Jesus, but it strikes me that the real possibility is that Jesus wanted to give them really a tour of the Bible before he broke bread and revealed himself to them. He wanted to begin at Moses, but remind them of the Passover lamb in light of the cross, these events that had just happened, and then reenact the Passover meal to remind them that he came to inaugurate a new covenant in his blood. Whatever the case may be, we can see that after Jesus asks them what they're talking about, they, they are downcast. Jesus' question stops them in their tracks, doesn't it? And verse 17 ends saying, And they stood still, looking sad. You see, they're grieving as those without hope. Their confusion continues when after they explain what happened to Jesus, I love it, they're explaining this to Jesus. This is what happened, by the way. You probably don't know this. This is what happened these recent days. But then there in verse 21, notice what they say there. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped. All their hopes have been dashed. They've, they've lost all hope. It's true that they go on to recount the fact that their friends told them that the tomb was empty, but, but they don't believe, they're confused, they're perplexed. At least, that, that's what, uh, that is what Jesus says in response to verse 25, right? Verse 25, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Their unbelief is broken. Their blindness is broken. When God finally opens their eyes to see Jesus there in verse 31, notice how verse 31 is written. It does not say, they opened their eyes. 
Though it says, and their eyes were opened. What's being expressed there, you see this perhaps a little more clearly in, in the original language, what's, what's being expressed there is what's called a divine passive. Uh, and what we're to understand as a consequence of verse 31 is that God graciously opens their eyes. God opens their eyes. They see Jesus and then he vanishes from their sight. How confusing for them. Right? Luke doesn't tell us this, but you know that they spent like a few minutes like looking under the table. You know, where did he go? Where, where, you know, what's around the corner? It's just, it's got to be incredibly confusing for them. Jesus vanished. But, but now they understand. And now they're, they're off to go and tell others. Look at verse 33. What do they do? They go back to Jerusalem that same hour. This news, it just can't wait They've got to go and tell their friends. They've just traveled seven miles with Jesus, right? And then they go back seven miles. Some of you have like 13.1 stickers on the back of your car. These guys have 14.0s, right? They've, they've gone 14 miles. They, they get back to Jerusalem and they, they share. They all share their stories and Jesus turns up again. He begins by issuing a word of peace. And how do they react? Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. This is a reaction of a people who are perplexed, who are confused and frightened. They, they've just said to one another, he's risen, he's alive. But then, in, in, they said that in verse 34, but then they think he's a ghost. Uh, this is not a picture of people who get it. This is a picture of people who are troubled and perplexed by what they see. Now, I've belabored this point long enough, but I've stressed the point because in an effort to dismiss the, the historicity, the reality of the resurrection, some have suggested that the disciples were gullible. Like, they're, they're seeing visions. They think he's a ghost. Well, they weren't gullible. They, they were slow to believe. You see that in verse 25. Jesus' resurrection had to be proven to them from different angles. They said, oh, he's a ghost, but then he has to prove himself. No, I'm physically here. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones like I have. They had to be persuaded that he was raised from the dead. What had happened had to be patiently explained to them. Christianity, it stands and falls on the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we're looking at here, it stands and falls on whether or not Jesus got up from the dead. Uh, and our unbelieving friends, they, they, they get this. And this is why they've tried in vain for 2,000 years to come up with alternative explanations for the empty tomb. Believers understand that Christianity stands and falls on the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ too. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 17 that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You know, if you're trying to make a religion up, then Luke, he goes about it all wrong. However, if you're just honestly trying to recount history, no matter how bad it looks, then you get what we have here in Luke's gospel. An empty tomb, a Jesus who has been raised from the grave bodily, and perplexed disciples. And here's the kicker. The, the, things that make, the thing that makes the disciples' confusion all the more authentic and surprising is that these things were predicted. 
This is the second point that we want to think through as we, we comb through this chapter. These things were predicted. Jesus' suffering, his death and resurrection were predicted. And these predictions were mentioned no less than three times in Luke 24. Look at what the angels say to the women at the empty tomb. Luke chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. This first reference to the prediction of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection was to Jesus' own words, his own teaching. He taught this to his disciples. Just after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, we hear these words in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then just nine chapters later, in Luke chapter 18, we're told that Jesus, he personally pulls his disciples aside and directly says to them in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Now, as we move deeper into Luke 24, we're reminded of the prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection from another angle. So, in, in verses 6 and 7, right, we've got a reference to Jesus' own words about what he would experience. But then in verses 25 to 27, Jesus hearkens back to the Old Testament. Here Jesus, he's, he's telling his disciples that his suffering, death, and resurrection were actually predicted in the Old Testament. So, let me read verses 25 to 27 again. And he, that's Jesus, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So right in verses 6 and 7, we've got predictions from Jesus in his own earthly ministry. And then in verses 25 to 27, we've got a reference to the predictions in the Old Testament. And then, in verses 44 to 48, Jesus actually brings the two together. So in verses 44 to 48, Jesus brings his own predictions and the predictions of the Old Testament Scripture together. Take a look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke with to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of, prophet, law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now there's a lot to digest here from these kind of three references, these three occasions. We, we only have time to briefly explore just a few implications from what Jesus has said here and what's been said about him. Among the most important things that these references communicate are that all of the scriptures point to Jesus. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. Second, another important thing that we see here is that Jesus' suffering and resurrection were necessary. They were necessary. And third, that the goal of Jesus' humiliation 
and his exaltation in his cross and resurrection was the accomplishment of salvation for the blessing of the nations. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. You see the prophets there are mentioned in verse 25. Moses and all of the prophets were mentioned in verse 27. But as you can see there in verse 44, that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms are mentioned. And this is, is I suppose many of your study Bibles probably note this, likely refer to this. These, this refers to the three divisions of the Old Testament in Jesus' day. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And for, for what it's worth, I think the point that Jesus is making here is why many of us sometimes, as we're reading our Bibles, we don't really understand them and get them. Uh, we're reading like Deuteronomy or Leviticus. And, and we're saying to ourselves, what does this have to do with anything? And, and this doesn't make any sense. And, and it often doesn't make sense because we're not seeing really how it's connected to Jesus. Um, for those of you who have seen my uh, history of redemption chart, uh, then you'll know that I think that the shape of the Bible can be characterized a bit like a bow tie. Uh, and I can draw it out for you later if you're really interested in it. But th the basic thrust is, is that it's shaped like a bow tie with Jesus serving as the knot in the middle. He's the one that ties it all together. Um, we don't have time to work through every messianic reference in these three divisions of the Old Testament. For now, here are just a few. In the law of Moses, specifically in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, we have the promise of an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. And Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that Jesus has destroyed the power of the devil. He's that offspring. He's the promised offspring. In Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17, God makes these wonderful promises to Abraham that his offspring will be a blessing to the nations. And in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, he was that promised offspring who, who blesses the nations. So this is what Paul writes in Galatians 3.16. He writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. See, those promises to Abraham were about Jesus. The, the prophets is a heading not only for the major and the minor prophets, uh, who, who were known as the, the latter prophets, but also for a few of the histories like Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings. Those were actually known as the former prophets in Jesus' day. Since the, the women of our congregation are, are studying through 2 Samuel, uh, then you could jump into a conversation with them about 2 Samuel 7. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 teaches us, one of the former prophets, uh, teaches us, refers to the covenant that God makes with David. Uh, God promised David that one of his offspring would rule on the throne for eternity. And the genealogies of the New Testament prove that Jesus is the son of David, the, one who, the king who's come to rule and reign. And last week, we saw how Jesus fulfilled the words of Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet Isaiah. He filled the, the Isaiah 53, the, the suffering servant of the Lord. The Psalms, uh, the Psalms stand as a summary heading for the remaining portions, really, of the Old Testament, often known as the writings. So Psalm 118, verse 22 says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus, inside Luke's gospel, in chapter 20, verse 17, said, I'm that stone that the builders rejected. We saw that take place in his cross. And when Jesus gave up his life on the cross, 
to the Father in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. You flip back just a chapter. Take a look at verse 46. What does Jesus say? He cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know what we read in Psalm 31, verse 5? Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And, and can I just pause here and point out for a, a moment this truth, that all of the scriptures point to Jesus, that this is what causes the two disciples to say in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? If you're bored reading your Bible, maybe make your prayer this, Heavenly Father, would you open the scriptures to me? Give me a heart that burns with passions for the Lord Jesus Christ as I read. Help me to see and savor Jesus as the center of the scripture. Brothers and sisters, I think there's a direct relationship between seeing, between seeing Jesus as the center of all of the scriptures and a passionate growing love for him. I, I trust that you see Jesus' point clearly in verse 44. Every portion of the Hebrew scriptures point to him and reveal his saving work. This is one of the reasons for, um, for why the language of necessity is really present in each of these references. You notice there, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Verse 7. Then verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And of course, verse 44. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Note here that Jesus understood his resurrection to be part and parcel of his necessary and predicted work. There are, are many references to this in the Old Testament, but two of the clearest references, I think, are found in Psalm 16 and Isaiah 55. In Psalm 16, verse 10, the psalmist prophetically prays, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. See, God the Father did not abandon Jesus. He raised him from the dead. He didn't let his body be corrupted. He raised his body and gave him an incorruptible body. And when the Apostle Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2 verses 25 to 20, he declares that David was talking about Jesus. And in Acts chapter 13 verse 34, when Paul is preaching in Antioch and Pisidia, he explains that Isaiah chapter 55 verse 3, which I didn't read but you could read later, that's a, re a reference to Jesus' resurrection. These predictions show us that all of the scriptures point to Jesus. That his death and resurrection were necessary. And that the goal of Jesus' humiliation, his death, and his exaltation, his resurrection from the grave, was the accomplishment of salvation for the blessing of the nations. It's especially clear there in verses 46 and 47. Jesus gives us a, thus it is written. And by that, Jesus means it was written in the Old Testament that this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection should be proclaimed among the nations. Well, where do we get that in the Old Testament? I'd argue from everywhere. But if you're going to pin me down uh, to two places with a limited amount of time on a Sunday morning, uh, I would run straight to Jonah and to Isaiah. Yes, I'd, I'd go to Jonah. Uh, I go to the prophet who was swallowed up in the belly of a great fish, the prophet who was entombed in the belly 
of a great fish and spit out of a watery grave to then go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to the nations. In fact, Jesus told us in Luke chapter 11 verse 30, as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. And what did Jonah do after he was raised from that watery grave? He went and preached. And who did he preach to? He went and preached to the Gentile nation of Nineveh. God has always intended his message of repentance and forgiveness of sins to go to the nations. So I'd also run to Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 where the prophet says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. Pause, right? What were the disciples hoping for in verse 21? You see there? They were hoping that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. That's too small. He, he is not just the one to redeem ethnic Israel. He is the one to redeem all of Israel. All of those who would come to Jesus Christ by faith. So back to Isaiah 49 verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And of course, where does Jesus send his disciples? As, as we'll see in just a moment, he'll send them to the ends of the earth with the promise and the power of the Holy Spirit. Before we can turn and consider that thread, I think we each personally need to come to terms with the necessity of Jesus' suffering from another angle. We need to ask ourselves if we have embraced Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has accomplished and won on behalf of sinners. Friend, do you, do you know that God made you? Do you know that he's the author of your life? He is the reason that you are breathing this very moment. He authored your life and he has authority over it. Do you live under God's authority? When God first made the world and the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he set them in a beautiful garden. And he told them that he, they could eat of every tree in the garden except one. God gave them one command, one rule. He even graciously warned the first man and woman. He warned Adam and Eve. He warned them that if they would eat of that tree, that they would die. And sadly, Adam and Eve rebelled against God's gracious, good, and loving command. They chose to live their own way rather than God's way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all decided to reject God's good authority over us, and in doing so, we have all brought God's judgment upon ourselves. We all deserve to face God's good, just, righteous, and holy wrath against our sin forever in hell. When we sin against the eternal God, the only just punishment is an eternal punishment. The good news of the Bible is that in love, God purposed and planned to send his one and only most beloved son to suffer 
for our sin. That's why we have all of these predictions of Jesus coming in the Old Testament. These prophecies were God's way of saying to his people that salvation is on the way. Help is on the way. I'm going to come and rescue you. And he did come and rescue his people. He came in the flesh. Jesus was just the help we needed. Jesus being fully man and fully God lived the life that we have not lived. He lived the life of perfect obedience to God. And Luke 23 teaches us that Jesus suffered and died on the cross. He, he died bearing God's punishment against our sin. And Luke 24 teaches us that God raised him from the grave so that we might be saved. And if you were to, to keep reading into the book of Acts, which is Luke's kind of sequel to his gospel, you would see Jesus' disciples explain that we come to be saved by repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. What that means is that we enter into salvation by confessing that we have rebelled against God. We've rejected his rule and that our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is that Jesus lived for us and died for us and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. And friend, if you want to be forgiven of your sins and saved by Jesus Christ, then turn from your sin and come to him in repentance and faith. Believe that his humiliation in his death and his exaltation from the grave accomplished your salvation. And if you want to know more about what it means to believe in and trust in Jesus, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about this good news of Jesus Christ. Well, having learned that these uh, things were predicted, let's turn now and consider the proof of Jesus' presence. This is uh, something that we've seen woven through this chapter, the proof of Jesus' presence. In this chapter, Luke stresses that Jesus has been raised from the grave bodily. We see this first in the fact that the women who went to the tomb, in verse 3 there, you see they did not find the body. Physically, Jesus' body was gone. And the angels explain that that's because Jesus is alive. He's, he's not here. He is risen, they say in verse 6. And then in verse 12, Peter himself goes to the tomb and finds that it's empty. And notice how tactile Luke's description is. Um, Peter, the tomb's empty, but it's not completely empty. Peter sees the linen cloths that Jesus' body was wrapped in. There's, there's physical evidence that his body was there. If you were moving a dead body, there would be no reason to unwrap the body. But if that body was getting up from the dead and would like to move around, he would take those things off. And that's precisely what happened. That's why those cloths were there. If you skip down to verse 15, you'll notice that Jesus is physically present with these disciples. He's, he's walking with them. He's talking with them. They engage him, implore him to travel with them further. You can almost feel them like tugging on his arm. No, no, don't go further. Come with us. Stay with us. They strongly urged him in verse 29. Just as a quick aside, when was the last time you urged Jesus to stay with you? Jesus, stay with me. Do you feel your need for his presence with you? Do you admit your weakness and your need for his strength? These disciples, they, they walked and they talked with Jesus. These are normal interactions of living persons. 
of living human persons. Jesus is doing all of the same things that these two disciples on the road to Emmaus are doing. And that's because he's just like them. He's physically alive, like them. Jesus even prays. He physically holds bread. Right? He physically holds the bread. He, he breaks the bread before them there in verse 30. Ghosts and spirits, they don't hold bread. They don't break bread. Jesus is not a ghost. He wasn't merely raised spiritually. He was raised physically. It is not the physicality of Jesus' presence that is the mystery. That's normal to the disciples. What is not normal is that he vanishes. Right? The physically risen Christ is also endowed with supernatural power. Jesus' physical presence with his disciples is emphasized when he stands with them there in verse 40. Jesus, he shows them his hands and his feet. You know, often, uh, a number of the men were talking on Friday morning, often we think it's just Thomas who doubted. But really, it's all of the disciples who struggled to believe that Jesus really was raised from the grave. Jesus, he, he shows them his hands and feet. In John's gospel, we learn that Jesus invited them to actually touch him. Come here, touch my hands. He was proving his physical presence among them. That's part of the reason he asks for something to eat. That's why Luke records not only in verse 43 that he took it, but that he ate it. See, Luke, he's underscoring Jesus' physical presence for us. He, he, just could, he could have just said that Jesus, he found something to eat, and he ate it. But, but notice what he does. He, he asks the disciples, he follows it, that, that request. The disciples find something, they give it to Jesus, Jesus takes it, Jesus eats it. Luke wants us to see the whole process. He's, he's driving this point home that Jesus physically got up from the dead. He is the proof that the new creation has dawned. You get that, right? What day of the week did Jesus get up from the dead? First day of the week. The answer is there in verse 1. He got up on the first day of the week. So let's just let's put, let's put this puzzle together. Jesus completes his work on the sixth day. Right? On Friday, just as God completed his work in Genesis 1 on the sixth day of the week. Then what happened? God rested. How did, how did Luke 23 end? There's this mention of the Sabbath. That a resting is taking place. And what do we have here in Luke 24? We have the first day of the week, the dawning of the new creation. And Jesus is the proof that the new creation has dawned. Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, brothers and sisters, in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we have proof that we too will be raised from the dead. We have proof that what we read about in Ezekiel 37, where the dry bones are raised up, will take place in our lives too. As Thomas Watson once said, we are more sure to rise from our graves than we are to rise from our beds. I get that. We are more sure to rise from our graves than we are to rise from our beds. Just as Jesus got up from his grave, so we too will one day get up from our graves. This old world will pass away and all things will be made new. Jesus' first disciples staked their lives and their ministries on this truth that Jesus has been physically raised from the dead. This was crucial for the disciples of Jesus as their ministry unfolds in the New Testament. 
The disciples were witnesses, eyewitnesses, hand witnesses of these things. Remember, Jesus invited his disciples to touch him. Well, this is what the Apostle John will say in his first letter. That which was from the beginning, and he's referring to Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see here, Jesus, he physically appeared to his disciples. He ate with them. They saw him. They touched him. And they believed in him. Do you? Do you believe in him? As we briefly consider the last and final point, I want to ask this question to you. I encourage you to think about it as we think about these things. Has Jesus' resurrection changed your life? Has Jesus' resurrection changed your life? Must you tell others about it? This is what disciples of Jesus do. They tell others that he got up from the dead. This is our fourth and final point, the promise of proclamation. We're thinking about proclamation. Proclamation by Jesus' disciples is really occurring all throughout this chapter. It's often cast as telling, as you can see there in verse 9. After the women hear from the angels that Jesus is risen from the dead, they go and tell the eleven and others about all of these things. After Jesus discloses himself to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they turn around that very hour, they return to Jerusalem in order to tell others what had happened on the road. You see that in verse 35. Everyone who discovers that Jesus has been raised from the dead goes and tells others about this good news. Have you come to know and believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Are you telling others about Jesus' death and resurrection? In verse 48, we have Luke's version of the Great Commission. Notice the declarative tone from Jesus. You are my witnesses. They didn't have much of a choice in the matter now, did they? Whatever the case may be, I think that they felt privileged and undeserving of this commission. And we should be clear, this is a unique commission from Jesus. We are not witnesses. You and I, we're not witnesses in the same way that the apostles of Jesus were witnesses. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' physical presence with them and among them before and after his resurrection. Here Jesus is especially commissioning his disciples, the twelve, to explain, or the eleven here, to explain the Old Testament scriptures in light of his work. This is why Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures as we see there in verse 45. And that's what we have in the New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit inspired proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus promises his disciples that he will give them help through the Spirit. That's what I think Jesus is referring to there in verse 49 when he refers to the promise of his Father and being clothed with power from on high. This is what took place on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Jesus' disciples when they boldly declared his name to the nations. They were witnesses beginning at Jerusalem and they carried the good news of Jesus' resurrection to the ends of the earth. So, the book of Acts, it ends with Paul preaching, right? To the world, basically. John chapter 14, verse 26. We learn that Jesus promised his disciples that the Spirit will teach them all things and bring to remembrance all that Jesus had said. Because the Spirit did teach them all things and bring to remembrance all that Jesus had said, we have all that we need 
for life and godliness from the apostles, the writers of the New Testament. We have all of Jesus' words that we need for life in this world and being witnesses for Jesus. Now we follow in the footsteps of the apostles, not by writing letters and adding books to the Bible. No, we follow in their footsteps simply by proclaiming what they have witnessed and proclaimed. We are called to proclaim, in the words of Jude 3, the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints by the apostles. We too have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we are empowered by him to proclaim the good news about Jesus. And Luke's gospel, it closes with two important points. First, that Jesus ascended into heaven. He was taken up into glory, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and from there he will return to judge the living and the dead on the last day. And the second, and this is where I want us to conclude. Second, Luke's gospel ends with Jesus' disciples worshiping him. You can see that there in verse 51. They blessed him. And in verse 52, they worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus. Who's worthy of worship? Who's the only one who's worthy of worship? It's God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God and that is why they worshipped him. They were filled with great joy and blessed God. Does this characterize your life as a disciple of Jesus? Is your life marked by the worship of Jesus? Is your life marked by great joy? Do you, do you see, do you, do you continually bless God? You see that there in verse 53, don't you? That word continually. Later this week, our culture will take a day off. It's a wonderful opportunity to thank and bless God. And still, we should worship Jesus and bless God continually, as long as we have life and breath. This, this conclusion has been the goal of Luke's gospel, really from the beginning. The worship of Jesus, and the blessing, and blessing God for salvation in and through Jesus. Friends, this is my hope for you. This is what our response should be to the message of the gospel of Luke. We should worship the Lord Jesus Christ. For the salvation of sinners has come through him. We should bless God for his mercy. Jesus has been raised from the dead as predicted by the scriptures. So rejoice in this good news. Worship him and tell others about him. Would you join me in prayer?